0: The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license.
1: I believe in Jesus Christ.
0: For our regular listeners and for any newcomers, as you know, we're currently engaged in a verse-by-verse study of the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you will, open your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where in our last episode we had just opened with verse 1, which states, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. As you recall, as we pointed out, this was a brand new topic in chapter 2, verse 1, so we have an appropriate chapter break here. Secondly, Paul launches a theologically loaded and complex topic regarding two things— First, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and second, our gathering together unto him. Just to summarize what we talked about in our last episode, this verse deals with five things. Number one, the coming of our Lord Jesus the Christ. Two, the rapture or catching way of the church. Three, the tribulation. Four, the wrath of God or the day of wrath and five Judgment Day. Now we discussed at length each one of these five subjects and as you recall with the rapture we pointed out that there are several prophetical or eschatological views that have been held throughout the century with regard to the timing of the rapture relative to the tribulation and or God's wrath. We also briefly discussed Daniel's 70 weeks of years, which uh, comes out of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, and the timing there, which according to most accounts, leaves us with a seven-year period that is yet future, wherein this rapture, tribulation, God's wrath, and so forth are all dealt with in the planning of God's resolution of his plan for redemption. Having discussed these issues previously, let's move on to verse 2, where Paul says, that ye be not shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So, in context with regard to both verses 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we can make some logical deductions based on these verses. Apparently, based on verse 2, there was either a verbal tradition and or teaching that was going on, or possibly a letter which had proposed to be from Paul or just a general spirit of doctrinal heresy that was afoot in the Thessalonian church at the time Paul was writing this letter, which was causing the Thessalonian church, the individual believers, to be shaken, to be troubled, or to be deceived as a result of this false letter, false information, or spirit of deception which was going on. In essence, Paul is saying don't be fooled into believing that the day of Christ, i.e. the day of the Lord, the rapture, has come, or was there at that time, simply because of persecution and tribulation. Now, this is not only important for the purposes of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, but more importantly, is relevant to today's climate. What it tells us is that tribulation and persecution do not have a correlation necessarily to the day of Christ, the, the tribulation, and or the rapture. You might ask, well, why is this? That's because our Lord Jesus tells us in many places that in the world we will have tribulation, as we've pointed out several times throughout the course of our uh, studies in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Tribulation and persecution are part and parcel of the world. It is a part of the dynamic that we all share as a result of sin. And while yes, even the unsaved share in God's common grace We also share in the common tribulation and persecution, which we oftentimes label as quote-unquote evil, which is in the world because of Satan's sin in the flesh. Here in the Thessalonian church, there were those that were trying to correlate this general persecution and tribulation, which was admittedly great, and as a result of it saying, the reason that this is going on is because the day of the Lord is here. God is pouring out his wrath on you. But again, as we pointed out, it is impossible for God to pour out his wrath on his elect because his wrath was poured out on Christ, and if in fact the elect are in Christ, then that wrath which we are all due as a result of the sin which we are guilty of before God has been paid in full on the cross. Therefore, we conclude as Paul does in 1 Thessalonians that the church, the Christ's elect, are not appointed unto wrath. So you ask if general tribulation and or persecution are not going to be giving us a indication of when the day of Christ is at hand, then what does? Paul answers this in verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The day of Christ shall not come except, except what? Except there comes a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, the first thing to note in verse 3 here is the phrase, quote, for that day shall not come, unquote. This phrase is inserted by the translators in an effort to focus the context of the overall verse. It is there ostensibly to help us understand that the, quote, coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering together unto him, unquote, will not happen unless and until there is a, quote, unquote, falling away. If we leave out the translator's comment, the verse could and properly should be translated as follows, Quote, No one should be deluding you by any method, for should not the apostasy be f- coming first, and the man of lawlessness be unveiled, the son of perdition, unquote? In other words, there must first be the apostasy, then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now, enter into a theological debate. The word apostasy, or apostasia in Greek, can be defined various ways. There are classically two ways that this word apostasy is translated. Depending on how you translate the word, it drives your eschatological view of what will happen in the end days. Now, it should be said also that it is possible to enter into uh, defining and interpreting this verse with a priori bias about how the word is to be defined. You ask, well what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is it is possible to already have a pre-existing eschatological view or theory about what is the tribulation, when is the tribulation, and how does it happen, and to have had that established in your own mind and then to read this verse and interpret it in such a way that the verse then agrees with your theology and proves your theology. That would be what we call eisegesis. However, it is also equally possible to enter in with exegesis and to read the verse for its own merits and then hold to whichever view of eschatology best fits the grammar. Having said this, it is also necessary to take into context everything else in the Bible so as not to make this an isolated case which we build all of our theology on backwards. Now, with regard to the definition of apostasia, Liddell and Scott's Greek lexicon defines apostasia as either, one, a defection or revolt, or two, a departure or disappearance. Now, a review of the history of Bible translations show that the first seven English translations of the word apostasia all rendered the noun as either, quote-unquote, departure and or, quote-unquote, departing, unquote. The examples are as follows. The Wycliffe Bible of 1384, the Tyndale Bible of 1526, the Coverdale Bible of 1535, the Cranmer Bible of 1539, the Breaches Bible of 1576, the Beza Bible of 1583, and finally the Geneva Bible of 1608. Each of these Bible translations support the notion that the word apostasia truly means quote-unquote departure. In fact, Jerome's Latin translation known as the Vulgate from around the time of AD 400 renders apostasia with the word quote, decessio, unquote, meaning quote, departure, unquote. The King James Version was the first to depart from the established translation of departure to a defection or revolt. Also notice that... In terms of the Greek grammar, the word apostasia is preceded by the definite article in the Greek. This means that there would have to be a definite or a distinct event in view which would be recognizable to the Thessalonians or to God's elect. Now, it is admitted that in current circles, the high percentage of definitions and scholars define apostasia as a defection or revolt. So, in order to put that into a sentence, usually one might say that someone has apostatized from the truth. In other words, there was a truth in view that was once held, and this person or persons have now departed from or revolted against that established truth which was understood and universal to the majority. So, just arguably hypothetically, if in fact this definition is the correct definition, then we could paraphrase verse 3 as follows let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, that is, shall not come unless there be a departure from the truth, or heresy against the truth, and at that point the man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition." So, in essence, Paul was telling the Thessalonians that that day was not present at the time he was writing this verse, but there would be a day in future that they and or their descendants would be looking for when the things which Paul and the Thessalonians understood to be true would be departed from and would be heretical to that generation or group of people in that day, just preceding when the Lord would return. As a result of that, for those who hold this definition to be the correct definition, those people in the church, those saints in the church, have been waiting for generations, for hundreds of years now, waiting for a time when the church... Uh, quote unquote, would depart from or revolt against the truth which was understood and held by the majority. However, if we start to examine this theory, then we have a dilemma, frankly. First of all, apostasy or this revolt, uh, this departure from the truth would be a relative term from generation to generation and every generation from the Thessalonians forward would be looking for, or at, or wondering about, being unsure whether or not what was going on was, quote-unquote, THE apostasy, or just another apostasy. Further complicating the matter, we have the actual promise or guarantee from our Lord that there would be many who would uh, come about saying, I'm the Lord, I'm the Christ. There would be many who would fall away from the faith. And in fact, that was happening even in the time of our Lord, for those who walked and talked with the Lord, who walked away from him. This continued to happen in the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth, and so on and so on, and continues even unto this day. If one were so inclined, we could drive down the street in our car and take a random sampling from every church on the block and probably come up with uh, dozens of churches which were holding themselves out to be true churches but by comparing those churches with what the Bible says as a church, one can make the argument that those churches and those congregants and those pastors and so forth have, by every definition, departed from or revolted against those truths which are found in God's Word. In the end, the only definitive way to know if what was going on was the apostasy would be in hindsight, as the church was now seeing the man of lawlessness on the scene of history, which would mean logically that the last previous apostasy was the apostasy. But knowledge of what was in fact the apostasy in hindsight would not provide any kind of specific warning to the church that the man of sin was imminent. And just historically speaking, not that we have any desire to uh, point fingers at anybody, but it, it is important to be honest and to recognize that there have been periods of time in history when people have done horrible things, including martyr and burn people at the stakes over simple disagreements of theology with regard to baptism or the communion or any number of things. Well, in those cases, one could argue that on one side of the fence or the other, somebody has departed from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, to the extent that they are willing to do horrible things to others who could be considered brothers or sisters in the faith for the sake of theology. These historical issues which are documented are no small issues, so the question arises, how would we distinguish between those historical issues which were carried out in large part on great numbers of people, versus some future event in theory. There would simply be no way to know, as I said, except in hindsight, and then, by that time, it would be too late. However, on the other side of the coin, if the word apostasia means departure or disappearance, then said departure or disappearance could strongly be argued to be the quote-unquote rapture of the church. This would, by any definition, qualify as THE occurrence in history, a milestone that everyone at Thessalonica knew about and was waiting for. It would need no explanation or definition. And unlike uh, a doctrinal or theological apostasy, a physical departure such as the rapture of the church would be self-evident and would need no litmus test. Most importantly to understanding what this apostasia or apostasy is, is the overall context of both letters to the Thessalonians. Let's remember that Paul is writing to reassure the Thessalonians, who were at that time under confusion, perhaps, again, because of a fake letter or false teaching, that they had somehow missed the rapture, and that they were presently enduring the great tribulation and or God's wrath due to the persecution which they were experiencing. Now, again, ultimately, the correct definition of apostasia here will drive the definition of one's eschatology. If, as stated, apostasy means a doctrinal, theological falling away from the truth, then the verse should be paraphrased, quote, don't let anyone delude you by any means. Shouldn't there be a falling away from the doctrine and theology of the faith first? Then the man of lawlessness be unveiled, the son of perdition, and then the day of Christ will come, Clearly this would then place the rapture in either a mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, or post-tribulation position, On the other hand, if apostasy means a catching away, or a physical departure, or a rapture, then the verse can be paraphrased as follows, Don't let anyone delude you by any means. Shouldn't there be a catching away or rapture first? Then the man of lawlessness be unveiled, the son of perdition, and then the day of Christ will come, unquote. So conversely, this would place the rapture in a pre-tribulation position. If the apostasy means a doctrinal or theological departure by the quote-unquote church, from the basic tenets, and the doctrines, and the theology of the, of the Bible, then by many definitions, the lawlessness one could have been revealed many times, since the church has departed many times from the faith once and all, for all delivered to the saints. We can only conclude then that the departure would have to be so much worse than anything in history that the magnitude of the error and the heresy would virtually create a vacuum for the lawless one and would make everything else heretofore look like child's play. Also, if apostasy means a physical departure or a rapture of God's elect, then the timing of the appearance and the working of the lawless one is being delayed, hindered, and restrained by the church until such time as Christ takes his bride, the church, to heaven via the rapture. Just to argue a little further, if apostasia, apostasy here, is defined as the defection, the revolt from the Core principles and theology of the faith, and Paul has already taught the Thessalonians this fact, then the fact that the Thessalonian church was under the mistaken impression that they had missed the rapture, and were enduring the great tribulation, would mean one of two things. One, Paul had never taught the Thessalonians anything regarding the timing of the rapture, Relative to the tribulation, if so, the timing of the rapture and the tribulation would not have been part of the Thessalonians' knowledge base of the core principles of the faith. Consequently, any warning by Paul or anyone else of the possibility of apostasy as it applies to the rapture and the tribulation would have been meaningless since it would be impossible to commit apostasy from something you had never been taught. 2. Okay, Paul did teach the Thessalonians about the timing of the rapture and the tribulation as part of the core principles of the faith. This is why, in verse 5 below, Paul reminds them that he did in fact teach them It is also why in verse 2 and 3 above, Paul can rightly chide the Thessalonians against being, quote, soon shaken in mind, quote, troubled in spirit, unquote, or deceived, quote, unquote. None of these things are possible unless there is a pre-existing teaching regarding the same issues. Further, further, The fact that the Thessalonians could start to apostatize from these core principles again opens the question and dilemma of defining apostasy as departure from doctrine, theology, or inheritance to core principles. The reason being that since they are already currently departing, committing apostasy, then how do they or we, distinguish between this and any other apostasy as being quote-unquote, the apostasy. If the church is meant to have a major defection and revolt from the truth due to deception, then surely the Thessalonian church is already experiencing deception, causing them to question and despair. On the other hand, if the apostasia, apostasy, is defined as departure or disappearance, and the departure or disappearance in question is the rapture of the, of the church, then the grammar of using the definite article quote unquote, the regarding apostasy makes perfect sense. There is only one in history and every Christian would have that hope and expectation. This also allows for the natural presence and progression of deception and revolt, which is as a result of sin, even sin that remains in the life of believers. The only other argument is that the deception and revolt which Paul is referring to is that deception and revolt embodied in the Antichrist, the lawless one, who is used by Satan. But this also makes no sense, because while the Antichrist will be the quintessential embodiment of deception and revolt, it would be a circular argument to say that the Antichrist, the one who is the epitome of deception and revolt, cannot be revealed until there is first the apostasy and deception and revolt, which is the Antichrist. In other words, if the Antichrist is the apostasy, you can't logically first have the apostasy, which must precede the one who causes the apostasy. The Antichrist cannot precede himself, but the rapture can precede the Antichrist. So in summary, I believe here that apostasia should rightfully be defined as a physical departure or the rapture which occurs prior to the man of sin being revealed. I respect those who uh, hold to the idea that apostasy means a departure from the truth, or a heresy from the truth. However, the problem, as I said, with that theory is that we would have to struggle long and hard to decide which one of the hundreds of apostasies that have happened from the time that Paul wrote this until today could be called the apostasy. Because at the end of the day, one would be unable literally to define the until such time as you were looking back at the situation in hindsight to then say, out of all the apostasies, This is the one which was the great apostasy, and there are no more apostasies forthcoming because we are already in heaven, otherwise we would still have to hold for the possibility that there could be another apostasy yet looming which would be greater than anybody else had ever seen. Therefore based on logic I would still defer to a physical departure or a rapture being the proper definition of apostasia. Hey, I'd like to thank you, just as a side note, for those of you who are regular listeners to Pastor Yeshua, it's my prayer and my hope that for those of you who do listen, that God blesses you with some insight into his word that you did not previously know. This year we will be coming up on a decade of Pastor Yeshua, I would simply ask that uh, if you have listened and in any small way been blessed by God's Word, or if you have a question, that you would reach out and send me an email. If you do have questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, as stated so many times, I would encourage you to send me an email at pastor-yeshua underscore at yahoo.com. That's PASTOR underscore YES HUA at Yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.
1: The world falls around me, I rest and know that he has found me. Christ, the rock, is my foundation. I will. I will trust in him I will trust in him I will trust in him